muted. Hang on. There we go. Turn to Isaiah chapter one, and uh, I'm going to be reading from verses. I'm sorry, Hosea chapter one. See. Uh, Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verses 2 to 11, then we're going to skip over to chapter 3. I'm starting this morning a sermon series uh, that we're going to call uh, Prophets and Parables. And we're going to take a couple weeks and look at some of the Old Testament prophets, and then we're going to uh, do a couple weeks in the parables uh, of Jesus in the Gospels. And you might wonder, why should we sort of put these two things together? And I think part of the reason is because both of these mediums use a lot of creativity as they communicate the truth of God. In in a ways, the uh, scriptures using art in order to communicate truth, maybe into the back door of our hearts. And actually, when you think about it, uh, the majority of the scriptures communicate the truth of God in this way. So there's all sorts of parts of the scripture where the truth of God is communicated very directly and very plainly, but the majority of the Bible is actually full of history and narrative, story, poetry, and all of these things are employed to teach the truth of God to our hearts. And so this morning, we're going to start looking at the prophets, and one of the things we'll see is that the prophets were very creative in how they communicated the truth of God to the people who were around them. In fact, most of the prophets, most of the prophetic material in the scriptures is actually written in the form of poetry. But sometimes they wanted to grab God's attention or grab the the people's attention in more tactile ways. And so they did what what I often thought of as an ancient version of street theater an ancient version of street theater. What do I mean by that? Well, um, I don't know how many of you have been watching the Olympics, um, but we in our house, well, I should say I in my house, we're Olympic junkies. So I've been watching every single night. I've always loved the Olympics and uh, am sad that I guess they're now over uh, according to Tokyo time. Uh, But I was very excited for the Olympics to start. And of course, I got my kids very excited for the Olympics to start. And I say, hey, the opening ceremonies are on tonight. And uh, this is the start of the Olympics. And it's been five years since we've even had the Olympics. And so my kids don't really remember what it's all about. So I got them really excited to sit down and watch the opening ceremonies. And we all sit down in front of the TV, we watch the opening ceremonies. And uh, you know that before they bring in all the nations and parade the nations around, uh, they have sort of these artistic things that happen. There's dances and there's choreography. And I will tell you that my kids were instantly bored (laughs) and instantly left the room in that part. Um, And I was trying to hold their attention, but couldn't really do it. But the commentators, if you watched it this year, the commentators, they were doing all these dances and all these choreographies. And the commentators had some guide to all this and they were saying what this dance meant and what that uh, sort of rhythmic motion meant. And there was meaning and there was purpose behind all these dances and between all this choreography. Well, in some ways, that is what God has done from time to time through the prophets. He employed a strategy similar to this to communicate truth. And so at points, God had the prophets do really bizarre things. I mean, really bizarre things on display in order to communicate his message to the people. And this morning, we're going to see perhaps what is one of the most shocking of these street theaters 
that God asked Hosea to do. And we're going to read about it in Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 uh, to uh, 11. And then I'm going to skip over to Hosea chapter 3. So uh, listen to God's word. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel." Hosea chapter 2 is full of all sorts of poetry and uh, more about what God has asked Hosea to do. And then the sort of narrative continues in Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lefetch of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore and belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much uh, just for this wonderful privilege of worship, for the opportunity to, uh, to just gather together as your people, as a community of faith, and, and remind our hearts of the truth. Father, we're forgetful people. Um, We wander after all sorts of lesser things, and we need to be reminded continually, daily, about your goodness, about the power of the gospel. So we pray that uh, in this very bizarre passage of Scripture, uh, that we would get a sense of your truth and that we would get a sense of your love. May we leave here refreshed in the good news of the gospel and emboldened and impassioned to be your children in a lost world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So I told you this was a pretty bizarre passage, but what I want us to see uh, out of this passage of scripture is this, something very simple and something we all need to be reminded of. And that is that God is, God's love is overwhelmingly undeserved and yet it is faithful to the end. God's love is overwhelmingly undeserved and yet it is faithful to the end. I believe that's the message of the whole book of Hosea and I believe that's what God wants us to see from this bizarre street theater story. And I think it's what our hearts most need to be reminded of and refreshed in. So let's start by looking at how God's love for us is overwhelmingly undeserved, how it's overwhelmingly undeserved. Well, let's go back to Hosea for a minute. One of the things that we learned about Hosea is that he was one of God's prophets. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know there are these characters that are called the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. It was an office uh, really that started with Moses. And often the prophets would be able to predict what was going to happen. They had some foretelling ability, but the large bulk of what the prophets talked about was what was called foretelling, which is very simple. They would receive a message from God that they were charged to communicate to the people, that they had to just transfer that message, get people's attention and transfer that message to the people. Now, because of this office, they were people that were often not liked very much. Uh, they were viewed as malcontents, people that upset the apple cart, that interrupted the status quo. They were a thorn in the side of the king often, or a thorn in the side of the people. They often threw a wet blanket on all that was going on in the kingdom and a lot of the fun that the people were having. And so Hosea is one of these prophets and God comes to Hosea and gives him a very bizarre commandment, one that's shocking to us. Even as we read it, God says to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by the forsaking of the Lord. Now that's a verse that you don't often teach your kids to memorize in the scriptures, is it? But nonetheless, it is there in the book of Hosea. What a bizarre request. Why would God do this? What is going on here? Well, most commentators believe that, that indeed God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to go out and to marry a prostitute. Some translators have a hard time with that, but the least common denominator is at least this woman, Gomer, was a adulterer, but most likely she was a prostitute. And so, of course, this command would have been shocking and surprising to everyone who was involved, and especially to Hosea the prophet. So just take for a minute and imagine the most religious person that you know, the most sort of sacred-minded and religious person you know, and imagine hearing a rumor that that person went to the street corners of Baltimore City in order to find a wife. Now, this would have been scandalous on so many levels and from every different angle that you would look at it. Why? Well, first, because marriage all throughout the scriptures is taken very seriously. 
The scriptures are clear that marriage should be between a man and a woman, that both should be people of faith. The book of Proverbs talks all about the fact that a wise person is wise in the choosing of a right spouse because that covenant of marriage is forever. And that word covenant is important as it is applied to this institution of marriage in the scriptures. It's not just a marriage license or a legal proceeding that we do at a courthouse. Before God, marriage is a covenant. But more than anything, God's design for marriage is that it would be a picture. It would be on display, that it would be a testimony to the watching world of the self-giving love that God has for his people. In fact, many of the prophets, not just Hosea, but many of the prophets would use this covenant of marriage idea to demonstrate the commitment that God makes to his people. In effect, that God is called our husband and we, his people, are called his bride, that he covenants himself to us, that in effect, He marries himself to us in love. And so all this language is going on through the prophets. And that's part of the reason why all of this is so shocking. And yet it sort of is the point of this street theater that we see here. Hosea is told to engage in this sacred institution, this divine bond with someone who is a known adulterer. And so I think the point becomes clear as you read the book of Hosea, because there's an amazing reminder here, and that is this, that we, as God's people, not just in Hosea's day, but as God's people today, we are the bride of Christ. But we certainly are people who don't deserve to wear white on our wedding day, as they say. Hosea's point is, is, is well taken, that in this story, we are Gomer. We are Gomer in this story. We are flawed, we are stained, we are imperfect, we are sinful, we are undeserving, and yet God finds us in the midst of all of that. He finds us and he marries us. He enters into this covenant of marriage with us, just like Hosea married Gomer. Now, we don't get a whole lot in this passage from Gomer's perspective, but I often wondered what she must have thought about this whole thing. I've wondered, did she even have a choice in all of this? But you can imagine how bizarre this must have seemed for Gomer as well. And as I thought about even her perspective um, uh, this this week, I thought uh, back to a mission trip that uh, I took a bunch of teenagers on years ago. Sean and Sharis were on that trip as well. We went to uh, to Brussels, Belgium. And when we were in Belgium, uh, we were walking along the streets. One of the first days they had was a prayer walk throughout the streets. And uh, you would walk throughout the streets, pray for different things. And uh, Brussels is a beautiful city, very metropolitan, but also very historic. 
And we just spent the day walking throughout the city and praying and you'd walk past chocolate shops and you'd walk past coffee shops and, and uh, you'd walk past these little boutique restaurants and these boutique shops. And I can remember specifically one day we walked around um, uh, one corner and it was a street that just looked like any other street. But as you looked in the windows, you saw women standing in the windows uh, as merchandise that you could go and purchase. And without even realizing it, we had stepped into this uh, red light district here in Brussels, Belgium. And you just couldn't imagine what those circumstances had been like for those women, many of which had been trafficked into that lifestyle and simply felt no way of escape. So as you hear that story, imagine Gomer And imagine one day a man of God, the man of God comes in and he marries her. It for sure is a scandal. It for sure is the talk of the town and the talk of the nation. But of course, the image is a powerful one. It points to a God who finds us. It points to a God who pursues after us. And it's a great reminder to all of us that when it comes to relating to this God who longs to have a relationship with us, that he doesn't ask us to clean up our act or to fix our reputation. Instead, he just finds us in the midst of our mess. He chooses us, he makes promises to us, and he loves us more than we can imagine. When you think about it, it really leaves no room whatsoever for any sort of arrogance any sort of posturing, any sort of reputation building in the kingdom of God, because the point is clear that you and I, we are Gomer in this story. We can never earn the grace that we find in Jesus. We can never earn the love of the Father. Instead, God pursues us. He finds us. This was true of God's people then, and it is true for God's people today. God's love is overwhelmingly undeserved. And yet God chooses to pour it in abundance into our lives. So that's the first thing I think it's important to see here. The second is this, that God's love is faithful to the end. It's overwhelmingly undeserved and it is faithful to the end. There's two quick things I want us to see about sin. And, and, and we talk a lot about sin. We're not afraid to talk about sin uh, at church One of the things that's very clear about sin is that sin leaves carnage and mess in its wake. Sin leaves carnage all around. We see that because this bizarre image doesn't end with the marriage. Um, I want you to think, those of you who are parents, I want you to think back to the time when you had your kids and you were deciding, what am I going to name my kids? And Becca and I have fun stories about uh, how we were going to name our kids, how we came up with the name of our kids. Well, think about that as you think about this story because, uh, because the bizarre images continue. Gomer and Hosea don't get to name their own kids. Instead, God names their children for them. Their first child's named Jezreel, which means God scatters. Uh, the second child, uh, their daughter, is named Lo-Ruham, which means no mercy. And their third child, a son, is named Lo-Ami, or not my people. 
So imagine Hosea calling the kids down for dinner one night. God scatters, no mercy, uh, not my people, come on down for dinner. Or, hey, no mercy, stop picking on not my people, right? These are sort of bizarre names that are here. But nonetheless, that's what God commands them to do. And of course, the point was there for God's people, as it is for us as well, was that if we continue in our sin, then carnage ensues, that sin gives birth to carnage and to mess. Now, Hosea preached this in the northern kingdom of God in right around the 8th century BCE. And for God's people, this was a period of great economic prosperity and great growth. Outwardly, everything was going wonderfully for the people of God. But inwardly, things were eroding away. The people were forgetting about the things of God. Instead, they were worshiping the gods of the culture that was around them. And they were settling for an empty religion and while they embraced the values of the culture that was around them. And so that's why God, in some ways, needed to really grab their attention through Hosea. In effect, saying, if you continue on this path, then it will give birth to all sorts of carnage. The carnage of sin will eventually catch up to you and it will overwhelm you. So God wanted them to see what this path, the fruit that would be born if they continued on this path, what their sin gives birth to. But he also wanted them to see that sin is more than just bad behavior. And I think this is the most powerful image that we get from the book of Hosea. Because one thing that Hosea teaches us about sin is this, that sin in many ways is a spiritual adultery. Sin is a spiritual adultery. Now that seems bizarre because we don't often think of sin in adulterous terms, but that is exactly the point of this street theater that we read here. And what happens in chapter three is this, Hosea and Gomer, they've been married, and they have of these three children together. But at some point, Gomer decides that she wants to return back to her adulterous ways. And so she returns back to all of these lovers that she had previously. We don't know how Hosea responded to her doing this. Maybe he was really heartbroken, um, or maybe he was relieved that he could be done with Gomer But either way, Hosea had to feel the sting of not only Gomer forsaking him, but returning back to his former lifestyle, her her, her, her former lifestyle. He had to feel that betrayal. Friends, I've been in ministry long enough that I've had multiple times where I sat down in coffee shops with folks who have felt the sting and the betrayal of a spouse who has cheated upon them where they've sat and cried in front of me as they sipped coffee to recount the sense of betrayal that they felt because their, cha- their spouse chose to cheat upon them, upon them. And one of the things that's taught me is this, this sin of adultery is a unique pain. It's a unique pain that is deep and profound. It's a betrayal to the highest volume. And that's why God uses these terms here. Because sin, God says here, is a spiritual adultery. 
Yes, God pursues us. He enters into our mess. He covenants himself to us. He marries us. We become his bride. And yet, even even as we're in this marriage relationship, covenanted to him, receiving his grace, what do we do? We betray him. We betray him. We worship lesser things. We give ourselves over to other lovers. We spurn God's love daily as we sin against him. Instead of being defined by the love of God, we give ourselves to other lovers, believing false promises. We give ourselves to the love of money, the love of fame, the love of reputation. And in so doing, what we do is we betray the God who loves us overwhelmingly. We play the role of spiritual adulterer. But the most remarkable thing happens here in chapter three. Because Hosea at this point probably thinks, Gomer's gone, I can now be done with her. It's over, I'm washing my hands of this terrible relationship. And then what happens? God comes to Hosea and knocks on his door. Says Hosea, I'm not done here. I'm not done here. And so Hosea is told to return back to the marketplace where he has to buy back his wife. He redeems his adulterous wife with a few pieces of silver and some barley. Bruce Wilkinson, who's a commentator, wrote that the most powerful message of the book of Hosea is this, that God's unconditional love keeps seeking us even when that love has been spurned. It keeps seeking us, even when that love has been spurned. And so, friends, the message becomes clear. We play the role of Gomer in this theater production. We are the spiritual adulterers who worship lesser things, who give ourselves to other lovers. We are the soiled and the unclean bride who is undeserving. Hosea becomes this picture of who God is to us. A God who demonstrates undeserving love that pursues after us in the midst of our mess. Hosea demonstrates this love of God that is faithful to the end, a love that never leaves us nor forsakes us, even if we run in the opposite direction. But Hosea, whose name actually means salvation, Hosea pictures for us the beauty, not just of God, but is a picture of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's a picture of God who became a man in order to redeem us, in order to buy us back from our sin. But for Jesus, our salvation didn't cost him a few pieces of silver or a little bit of barley. Instead, it cost him his very own life. Friends, the love God has for you is overwhelmingly undeserved. The love that God has for you is faithful to the very end. The love that God has for you is perfectly demonstrated, put on display through Jesus Christ's death for you. And so give way to his love. Give way to his love. Let it overwhelm you. Trust him with your life. Friends, let's pray.